But when Paul says, I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God by preaching expositionally through all the scriptures, we come upon those things that are perhaps not the most pleasant and not top of mind and not the subjects we want to address. But I think you'll see what I'm talking about as we get into it. But good and necessary. And when we take the good medicine, healthful to our souls. Follow along. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 7. And then we're going to pray together. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we begin this morning. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We bless you for uh, not only uh, the saving uh, salvation by the death of Christ, Oh, but the glorious report of his resurrection and ascension to the Father and how he has commissioned us. So we pray that you would indeed give us grace to go and tell and make disciples. Oh, Father, fill us with your spirit so to do and fill us with your word. Help us this hour to look into this portion of your word. Father, give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak, to speak plainly, to speak clearly and to do it all to your praise and glory. Teach us your ways, Heavenly Father, and let us not stumble in them, but walk with strength, strengthened by your grace and spirit, to the glory of your name. Amen. <clears throat> well, long before Taylor Swift became a billionaire singer phenom, and long before she became 2023 Times Person of the Year, in the 1950s, there was another rising starlet whose career ended tragically in a plane crash. Uh, Patsy Cline was well known by such signature songs as Crazy, Walking After Midnight, Sweet Dreams, I Fall to Pieces. But her first recorded big hit was entitled A Church, A Courtroom, and then goodbye. A church, a courtroom, and then goodbye. Among the lyrics are these. The first scene was the church, then the altar, where we claimed each other with tears of joy we cried. The next scene was a crowded courtroom, and like strangers we sat side by side. I hate the sight of that courtroom where man-made laws push God's laws aside. Then the clerk wrote our story in the record, a church, a courtroom, and then goodbye. Divorce is never a pleasant thing. No matter the circumstances, in spite of all the external bravado that people might put on display, saying I'm finally done with her, or I'm finally done with him, 
The pain inside is deep and it cuts deep. The tearing apart of a one flesh union that God had joined together is never a pleasant thing. It is hurtful and the scars will last a lifetime. While the primary theme of 1 Corinthians 7 is not divorce per se, Paul does spend some time on it while answering the Corinthians' questions, touching marriage and various other topics. There is a shift here in Paul's writing. From addressing the things immediately on his mind that he wanted to address, the troubles in the church, instructing them, rebuking them, directing them from a variety of the real and present dangers that were about to sink or divide or cripple the church, to responding as he does here to their expressed concerns, the things that they wrote to him. How much of the remainder of 1 Corinthians is in reply to those matters that he wrote to them about is not clear. It could be the rest of the book, but it isn't clear. But it is clear that he, what he responds to here in 1 Corinthians 7 is in response to their writings. What is clear also is that of all the subjects he addresses, all have serious, practical, moral, spiritual, and theological implications, and we do well to hear them with focus attention. He's going to address here issues of marriage. He's going to address things about idolatry. He's going to address things about giving. He's going to address things about how to relate to one another in the world. He's going to address spiritual gifts in the church and how and where they function. And then in chapter 15, He's going to address a heresy that had come in that somehow the resurrection was already past. And he addresses and clears up any confusion about the great subject of the resurrection. So all of these chapters in 1 Corinthians are significant and have a lot to teach us. Before we plunge into the content of these first 11 verses, the first part of this chapter, I want to make one quick application and then a short excursus off of this first verse. Look with me back again, just to the first part. He says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Now the quick application is simply this. It is a good and fitting thing to ask your pastors direct and specific questions. It is a good and fitting thing and we welcome them. Maybe it doesn't seem like we welcome them, but we do welcome them. The whole of 1 Corinthians illustrates how current, present, troubling issues in the church and on the minds of the congregation need to be addressed, need to be addressed. Now, not all the answers will be quick and immediate, however. Paul had the luxury of reading over this letter and making a, a slow and deliberative response to them from giving that in writing. So not all answers will be answered quickly. That's the application I want to take away from this first verse. Now the excursus is this. Now the excursus is just a fancy Latin word for a rabbit trail. And this will be familiar to many of you. A grandmother recently asked her pastor, a prominent well-known pastor, whether she should attend her grandson's transsexual wedding. After some discussion with her about the fact, does your grandson know where you stand, that you think what he is doing is unbiblical and wicked in the sight of the Lord, does he understand that? After questioning her about that, he nevertheless gave her this counsel to the surprise of this grandmother. He said, yes, you should go and you should bring a present. To put it mildly, this answer has set off a firestorm of controversy, with the majority of those sounding off being from the more conservative, Bible is the word of God affirming quarters, all emphatically denouncing the council, and I would tend to agree with them. To go to a gay wedding or a transsexual wedding somehow gives credence to what they are doing there as if it is an actual marriage. Somehow it is giving credence to what God looks upon as an abomination. And yes, it might be hurtful to the grandson. It might be a stick in his side. But in the long run, it is an act of grace and of love to him to do so 
and the hope is that he will heed those things. I mention this only to illustrate a point, that often it is specific answers to specific questions on practical rubber-meets-the-road questions that lead to the most contentious controversies in the church. Now, the answer, however, is not to dismiss or ignore all controversial questions, but to patiently seek the Lord for wisdom while remembering and factoring in Paul's exhortation to Timothy, foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. There are some questions that it's good just to avoid and ignore because they're only going to lead to undue strife in the church. Now, I do not think this grandmother's question was foolish, and it is a question we might all have to face sooner or later in some of our relationships. I do think the answer is clear. It is not the better part of wisdom or of love or Christian witness to acquiesce and stand by and support the quote-unquote marital ceremony of a gay or transsexual couple, which the scripture declares to be wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now, the questions the Corinthians wrote Paul about, he obviously did not regard as foolish and proceeds to answer them straight on and without equivocation. Paul gives clear answers to their questions, though maybe not everything they wanted to hear. So by way of outline this morning, we want to look at two broad headings. First of all, advice to the unmarried and to the married. And secondly, commands to the married. Advice to the unmarried and the married, and then to commands to the married. Under this broader first head, advice to the unmarried and the married, three headings. What was the question? What was the question anyway? Second, the short answer. Third, the detailed counsel. The detailed counsel further subdivided by maintaining healthy relationships in marriage. And secondly, Paul's desire and further concessions. So first of all, this advice to the married and unmarried. Look with me at verse 1 again. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, the first question is this, what was the question? What was the question? How often have you been in a conversation, perhaps, and you get on speaking about something, and the person's looking at you rather puzzled, and then you have to look back and say, what was the question? (laughs) Because you've run right off the rails. If you don't think that happens, listen to a few congressional hearings, and you will hear... uh, the the administration's representatives purposely going off the rail and the congressman having to bring them back to the question or themselves saying, what was the question anyway? Well, the question here is, what was the question? What was the question they were asking Paul? They had written to Paul about these things, and Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. If you have an ESV version, it reads in quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And in fact, a number of versions will have this in quotations. Now, I hate to say that I have a growing disillusion with the ESV as a translation because of some of these things. First of all, the word, the single word translated sexual relations here is much better expressed by its natural meaning meaning to touch, to touch. That's how it's usually translated throughout the New Testament. And to to read into it sexual relations per se, though I do believe that is the correct idea in mind, is to interpret the text rather than simply to translate it. We need to make a distinction between our translating and our interpreting. Leave the interpretation to the reader the translation should be as clear and direct as possible. So the interpretation in its context and connection may, and I would say does, refer to something beyond simply physical touch, even to sexual relationships, but that should be left to the reader to interpret. Secondly, uh, the NIV, the Holman, 
the CBS and the New Revised Standard Versions all put this in quotations. They put this part in quotations. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So what they are saying or expressing by that is this is what they wrote to Paul, and Paul is quoting back to them part of the letter. Well, that may well be, but it's inconclusive to come to that conclusion and to make that definitive suggestion by putting that in quotations. Now, that said, I do believe, I do believe that Paul is at least summarizing their desire, their question that they had in mind. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Here it's put forth as a statement rather than a question. And what may be in mind, we don't know what all is back of that question, but it could be already. There's a rising in the church at Corinth, a sense of asceticism that says all physical sexual relationships are bad and we should abstain completely from them. That would certainly come into play later in the church, even to the point where Paul writes later to Timothy, what? That the doctrine of demons creeps in that says it forbids to marry. It's wrong to marry. Well, what's Paul's short answer, secondly, to this concern that they raise, that isn't it a good thing not to touch a woman? Well, this word here, first of all, good, is an interesting word. There are several words in the Bible translated good. Here it is the word kalos, and it has the idea of what is noble or honorable or intrinsically good. Is it not intrinsically a good thing not to touch a woman? Well, Paul, in a sense, says, sure, but his short answer is in verse 2. Nevertheless, Though that might be true in some sense, it is noble not to enter into those kind of relationships. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, or if you have a different translation, because of fornication, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Now, this isn't the only reason for marriage, but it is a real and definite reason. In order to avoid sexual immorality, it is good to have your own husband and have your own wife. It may be good, honorable, to abstain from any physical relationship with a woman, but it is not normative. It is not normative. And in fact, I believe Paul's short and direct answer is instructing the readers that the very thing that they aim at to avoid, namely fornication, they are actually more likely to leave themselves more vulnerable and more tempted to by not marrying, by not marrying. We'll see this a little more as we go on. So Paul's short answer is, well, that might be true in some abstract sense. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, it is the better part of wisdom to marry each man to have his own wife and each wife to have her own husband. Well, that leads us in the third place to some detailed counsel. Detailed counsel. Counsel, first of all, to the married. First of all, to the married. Look with me at verse 3. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The old King James has, let the husband render due benevolence, due benevolence. And I believe that is really the best direct translation. The two words coming into play here has the sense of an obligation, a debt that is owed, due, what is due, a due benevolence. And the second word has the idea of not just affection on the surface and not just, as some translate, conjugal rights, or marital responsibility, though that's all within the purview, and that's the sense and context of it. But the idea of goodwill and kindness towards your spouse, show them that due benevolence out of an obligation that you owe them. The New Century translated, all that is owed her, render unto her, all that is owed her, all that is owed her, not just in conjugal relationships, but in the wholehearted benevolence and goodwill and affection that you ought to show toward your spouse. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife 
to her husband. It cuts both ways. Husband to wife, wife to husband are to show this. The idea here is that both husband and wife are indebted to one another with a debt of affection, of goodwill, and of benevolence toward one another. And then he goes on, verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul strengthens his argument by asserting that both the wife and the husband have authority over one another's bodies. This would have sounded revolutionary to many in the ancient world. Not so much for a husband to have authority over his wife's body, but to say that the wife also was given the same authority over her husband's body. That was quite a radical thing. There's a mutual relationship there in marriage. The wife having authority over her husband's body, a right and an obligation due to her, and a right and obligation due from the husband to the wife as well. They both have this mutual authority and obligation one to another. And Paul uses the interesting word, often this word authority, can be a translation of the word dunamis, which means power, but here he uses the word exousia, which has the idea of raw authority. An authority, a right, has been given to the wife. A right has been given to the husband in marriage to one another. They have become, the two become one flesh. So a fleshing out of that naturally would lead to them having authority over one another's bodies. We would assert again here that the gospel, far from being the cudgel of female oppression, does more to elevate them to a true sense of their calling and dignity as image bearers of the living God, and when in Christ, as fellow heirs of the grace of life and salvation, than all other religions or systems of thought. We're often in this country thinking Christianity is the thing that's oppressive to women. But if we look over the history of time, we see that Christianity is the thing that liberated women, exalted them to a place of higher dignity and place. And for now, us to assert certain things that the wife is subject to the husband, the, wife, the woman is to be silent in the church, all these things seem so oppressive. But really, Christianity, the gospel, uh, elevates the place of the woman far beyond what it is in any other religion or system of thought. Now, this authority of a wife's over her husband's body does not undermine the general duty of a wife to submit to her husband and is rather a check against the abuse and misapprobation of that authority by her husband. This is a check on the husband's abusing his authority when he knows and realizes the wife also has authority over the husband. Now, the husband still has general authority over his wife, but in this area, there was more of an equality, and that should be a check against the husband's abusing his authority, misappropriating it in a perverse and undignified way. Now, verse 5. He goes on, do not deprive one another, except it be with consent for a time. Here again, he's still speaking to the husband and wife in their mutual relationships. Don't deprive one another, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, the rabbis had worked out a very elaborate rubric as to when and how long conjugal rights could be suspended, most often depending on the man's occupation. If he was a driver of camels, so long, because he might be out driving camels and away from home for a time. If he was a sailor, there was a given period of time that they might suspend conjugal relationship. If he was a soldier and so forth and so on. And they go into quite detail about this, depending almost exclusively on the will of the husband, and that you might expect to find in keeping. But Paul, 
though trained under the rabbi Gamaliel and may well have been a rabbi in his own right, cuts through such regulations by asserting the simple principle of consent. The simple principle of consent. Do not deprive one another except with consent. For a while, each, each husband and wife have authority over the other's body, but they ought to come together to consent if they're going to suspend that for a time. The Greek word for consent is samphonas, literally voicing together. Voicing together is the word here. If you were doubtful of the need for open communication in marriage, well, you are herewith rebuked. Because Paul uses this word to say there needs to be this mutual voicing and communication in marriage and this voicing together to come to a consensus, a consent in this area. Paul then cites the lurking temptation from the chief tempter himself, Satan. These seasons of abstinence can run over to the neglect of the new but due benevolence he spoke of earlier. It has been well said that the old adage, absence makes the heart grows fonder, is really, should really read, absence makes the heart grow fonder for others. Absence makes the heart grow fonder for others. And so he says here, come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You might just want to go off. You might get your mind on other things and not want to render, render to your partner, your spouse, the due benevolence to her. But here he says, no, you need to come together or you're going to run yourself in the way of temptation. Temptations are going to come your way, whether from another person, whether from pornography on the internet, whatever it is, is going to lead to you falling into temptation. And Satan is ready at hand. Satan is ready at hand to push this, to push this. In fact, this might be behind what it is after all, that there's this false sense of asceticism that comes into the mind of the children of God, and they say, it's better that we just stop this for a while. I'm going to go live by myself, or I'm going to sleep in the other room. We're just going to break this off for a long time because that's a holier thing to do. And Paul is saying that's a false sense of these things. And rather, you're putting yourself into the way of temptation or you're putting your partner into the way of temptation. Though perhaps not a problem as yet, later in the early centuries of the church, a false asceticism took hold of some men who saw that all intimate relationships were evil and abandoned their wives and families to pursue life as a hermit or as a monk. They just left off the due and responsibility that they had because they thought it was a holier calling to live off as a monk or as a hermit in some sense in seeking the Lord. And Paul says, no, do not deprive yourself consent for a time to give yourself. There might be a season of prayer and of fasting that you want to give yourself to, but that you come together again. Paul countenances no such doctrine and would later write Timothy, as we said, that forbidding to marry was a doctrine of demons. Well, verse 6, verse 6, he says, But I say this as a concession and not as a commandment. Paul says here he is not commanding them to marry. It's not an absolute responsibility that you marry, as he will explain in what follows, but plainly concedes the necessity and actually the normalcy of marriage. Paul would write later about the younger wives, marry, guide the house, and so forth. He would say that that is uh, the normal pattern. The language of verse 26 might come into your mind. Some interpreters say, well, what Paul is saying is in view of what he says in verse 26, because of the present distress. Whatever the present distress there was in Corinth, it might have been a better thing not to marry for the time being. And all I'll say is we'll address that a little more down the road, but to say uh, that 
the present distress may enter in as a mitigating or contingent factor in all these questions. But I would say here that yes, to some degree, we will, but we will flesh this out later. Yes, to some degree, the things going on, the church perhaps in seasons of persecution, we might say, it's probably not a good time for me to get married because I might be uh, taken to the lions and killed and leave her a widow and perhaps a widow with children. And that would be a bad thing as we think of who men who go off to war and weigh, is this a good time to marry? Or should I say, when I return, when my time of service is over, I will return to you and we will get married. So those things all perhaps are entering into the whole argument and are a canopy over it all. But I think the principles that we've set out and read already here carry through all of this. Well, having seen then under this heading, advice to the unmarried and the married, what is the question, the short answer, and the detailed counsel, particularly maintaining healthy relationships in marriage, we come in the second place under this head, Paul's desire and further concessions in verses 7 through 9. Notice what he says, For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul, we gather throughout the reading of the scripture, was a single man. There's debate about whether Paul uh, was uh, a widower or perhaps a divorced man because normally a Pharisee would marry. But from all that I read, it wasn't a necessity even for a Pharisee that he be married. It's clear, though, that Paul at this time is a single man, and he says, I could wish that even all men were like myself. What does he mean? He's like myself, gifted with the gift of self-control, of continency, so that I can live out this calling of God on my life in singleness. Now, Paul is here expressing his wish and desire. The context must tell us whether this wish and desire is binding on God's people or his own personal expression. When he says elsewhere to Timothy that he desires men to pray everywhere, there in the context, Paul is imparting instruction to how the church is to conduct itself. He's not simply expressing his own mind and wish. When Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. He's expressing his desire and wish, but not something that is necessarily going to have to have a fulfillment. Here, Paul quickly qualifies himself by saying each one has his own gift from God. Each one has his proper gift from God. And the word he uses, interestingly, is the word charismata. He has his own charismata. It's a special gift of grace. If a man has the strength and ability to remain single and to have that gift of self-control, it is a special gift of grace. Jesus in Matthew 19, 11, says to his disciples, all men cannot receive this saying. All men cannot receive these sayings that it would be good for them to be, as it were, uh, uh, single men, all men cannot receive these saying, save those to whom it is given. So it is a special gift of grace, and it is not the norm. So I think Paul is not suggesting here that, boy, you guys would be really holy and better off if you were like me and abstain from these things. But he does say, I wish that, I desire that, because as he'll later talk about, that you might give yourselves to the Lord without distraction. Marriage can be a distraction, but it has a holy purpose as well. And then he goes on. But to the unmarried and to the widows, verse 8, it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Now here again he uses this word good, kalos, in the sense of it's a good, honorable, noble thing for them to do. It is good for them if they can remain as I am. But if not, they can't exercise self-control. Let them marry. 
that also is a good and noble and more the norm thing for them to do. So Paul is not here suggesting or advocating the superiority of a single life, but he is teaching that there are those who can live that out to the glory of God because they are so gifted in that area. Well, that leads us to the second large heading here, commands to the married, commands to the married. Look with me at verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now these two verses are set off in contrast to what follows. Listen what he says in verse 12. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say. And he goes on to give further instruction that he himself was given revelation and wisdom to counsel the people of God about. But here he is citing things that the Lord himself commanded, that the Lord himself commanded. Paul is here setting out a summary of our Lord's teaching, or rather his commands regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Paul is setting out a summary of those things. And Paul, like we said at the beginning, addresses this straight on in plain, straightforward, and simple language. Three things. A husband is not to divorce his wife. A wife is not to leave her husband. And if she departs, she is to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Now, is this in keeping with what Jesus taught his disciples. Paul says this is the summary of what our Lord already taught us. I'm not adding to that at this point. I'm reiterating, emphasizing what Jesus had already taught us, and he does so in this passage. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. What did our Lord teach about marriage and divorce and remarriage? Mark chapter 10, jumping in at verse 2. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So what is our Lord's teaching here? That marriage is to be permanent for life. They are joined together in one. If there is a divorce and a remarriage, it would be an adultery. It would be adulterous for a man to divorce his wife and to marry another, for a woman to divorce her husband and to marry another. The same that Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband is not to divorce his wife. The wife is not to leave her husband. Look with me also at Luke chapter 16 and verse 18. And I'll just back up to verse 17. Paul, or Jesus inserts this one verse in, in a discourse, and it seems at first kind of out of place. But he seems to be putting this in there because this is an area 
where men stumble at all too often. And so he puts this in here as an expression of God's invaluable law. Verse 17, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. So Jesus is here saying again in some, in one verse, the same thing he was saying in Mark, that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. So this is indeed consistent. Paul just draws out the clear implication that the only option, if there is a departure or a divorce, is for them to remain unmarried or to be reconciled. That might be a radical statement for you to hear. That is my conviction of the clear teaching of these passages, that he is saying that if, if someone divorces or departs, they are to remain unmarried or be reconciled to their spouse. But a question will rise in your mind. What about the exception clause? What about the exception clause in Matthew? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31. You can see why this isn't a friendly topic anyone wants to jump into. But we need to be faithful to the scriptures in these areas. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, or we might translate it simply, except fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And then turn with me also to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Okay, Jesus had already told them in the previous verse, there are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. You go back to those lyrics, they push God's law aside from man's law in the divorce court, so to speak. Then said, they said to him, verse 7, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So the question here is, here in Matthew, both chapter 5 and chapter 19, there seems to be an exception. Here's the exception. Fornication, if that spouse has committed fornication. But the question is, and the question we need to consider is, what is he talking about? What is Matthew writing about in the context of his day against the backdrop of the law of God? Is he talking about a spouse committing adultery? Saying that if a spouse commits adultery, the marriage is thereby annulled, thereby it is severed. I don't believe that is what he's saying. I believe Matthew, writing especially to the Jews, has in mind the Jewish law and is keeping that before their eyes and before their minds. Look with me at a couple things. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. They had not come together and consummated the marriage, but there she was, pregnant with a child. Okay? They were betrothed. 
They were engaged, we might say, in our culture, but Jewish betrothal was much more of a binding contract. Verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Okay? He was, in a sense, going to divorce her. He was going to put her away out of this betrothal contract. He was going to put her away because apparently she was no virgin. Apparently she had committed fornication. There was uncleanness in her when she came into that relationship, and they had not yet consummated their marriage. They had not yet come together. Of course, then the Lord shows Joseph that this child is of the Holy Spirit. But he has that in mind. He knows the Old Testament law, that he would be within his rights to put her away if it is discovered that she was not a virgin coming into the marriage. But he doesn't want to shame her publicly in that way, and he was minded to do it in a quiet, settling way. I believe that's what uh, Matthew has in mind in these other passages. This fornication, this sexual immorality that is discovered before marriage gives the husband, as it were, the right to divorce her at that outset of marriage, either before they came together or early at the outset. Now, what is the backdrop to that? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Two passages in the book of Deuteronomy that give us some background to this whole thinking among the Jews. Matthew or Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes to become another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now a few things to note here. First of all, when the Pharisees were asking this question of Jesus, that Moses told us we could give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, they had broadened out this passage of Scripture to refer to all kinds of things. Some of the more conservatives said, yes, it had to be some uh, really base thing in her character or in her person that would make us to do that. Some said, boy, if she just turns out to be a bad cook, I can give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, the context does not give them that right to do that. But he comes into this marriage relationship and finds some uncleanness in here. What do they mean by uncleanness? She is not a virgin. She comes into this relationship. Perhaps she's hid it from her future husband. The fact that she is not a virgin. And then it becomes known. Then he has the right to put it in her hand, a certificate of divorce, and put it and put her out of his house, either before that marriage had consummated, or shortly thereafter. That was their right under the law. Now, turn back as well. Now, if she goes on to become another man's wife, and the other man's, wife, the other man's husband says, I know that she is not a pure virgin, but I'm willing to take her and marry her anyway, then he is bound to stay in that relationship. He is bound to stay in that relationship if he enters it, both eyes wide open. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. In verse 13, and sorry, these are some lengthy passages. 
If a man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her, and he charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, Excuse me. I found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and punish him. What man? This man who has charged her with shameful conduct. And they shall fine him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. Okay, if it proves that this husband was just looking for an excuse to get rid of her, and she was indeed a virgin coming into that relationship, he would be punished, and he would be bound to stay married to her all the days of his life. But, verse 20, If the thing is true, and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel, to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, with this background in view, I believe that's what we come to both in the case of Joseph with Mary, and uh, Matthew picks that up as well in chapter 5 and chapter 19 when Jesus says, Except it be for fornication. Here is a just and only just ground for you to put her away, to break that betrothal contract or perhaps that early consummated marriage. But this is the only ground on which you might put her away. Now, time is getting away from us. Two other passages, and then there will also be in your mind, what about the abandonment of a spouse? We often hear that as a basis for divorce. Well, we're going to address that later on in 1 Corinthians 7, so I'm not going to address it now. But I would like you to turn to Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and just read the 39th verse. Paul can, comes to his conclusion. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And turn back with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Now in Romans chapter 7, Paul uh, uses this picture of marriage and the inviolability of the marriage bond and relationship as a picture of our being bound to Christ. Notice what he says, Romans uh, chapter 7, verse 1 through 4. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Here's the picture. By the death of Christ, we died to the law. We were married to the law. We were bound to the law as long as we live. But by the death of Christ, we are severed from that. 
so that we're free to be married to another. Notice then, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should be bear fruit to God. Now we're joined to Christ. Now our relationship, our marriage bonds, as it were, by faith, are to Christ. We're not bound as we were to the law. We're bound to Christ for the rest of our days and of our life. If that's the picture Paul is drawing here, wouldn't it be a violation of that to say that there is a grounds for divorce there is a ground for divorce and remarriage apart from the death of a spouse. Well, brother, not all, uh, not all good and godly men hold the same conviction, as you well know. Uh, many teach that there are two grounds for divorce. One would be adultery, and the other would be abandonment. In fact, if I read, if we read from our confession, the 1689, on the chapter, of marriage and divorce, it leaves off the two last paragraphs of the Westminster Confession that address the whole question of divorce. Our confession just leaves it off. Now we can speculate as to why, probably because it was a contentious issue among the Baptists or uh, because they had other convictions and thought that that should be left to the local church. But in the Westminster Confession, they put it this way. Adultery, uh, this is chapter 24, paragraph 5. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract, being detected before marriage, giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. Okay, so that's kind of, we already agree, I already said that's what uh, Matthew is getting at. Before the contract, this is discovered. That is a just cause, occasion for the innocent party to dissolve the contract. But then they go on. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Now I think it's interesting here that the writers of this confession had to resort to this language. Okay, if they commit adultery, it's as if they killed the marriage. It's as if they killed the marriage. They recognize that the only basis for absolving a marriage is the death of one of the spouses. They have to use that language even in referring to adultery as being a basis to dissolve the marriage. And then he'll go on to say there is also uh, the dissolving of a man because of the abandonment of the spouse. Now, all that being said, uh, probably have more questions than answers, right? What about, what about a spouse who's abused? What about a wife who's abused by her husband? And I think Paul leaves something of an out here and later on in 1 Corinthians. But and if she departs, but and if she departs, it may well be that the wife has to leave that situation. She has to move out for the sake of her own safety and perhaps of her children. There may well be reasons that she has to leave the immediate situation, but that is not the same as saying she is at liberty to dissolve the marriage or to sue out a divorce. Even if the husband commits adultery or the wife commits adultery, that is not necessarily a basis for divorce. I know those things are hard. But let's consider the scriptures and what they say. That's why often the old, the old adage when you entered upon a wedding, it was, this is not to be entered into lightly or unadvisedly. And this is why the apostles say to Jesus, if this is the case, if this is the case with a man, that there's no basis for absolving that marriage, it is better not to marry. It's better not to marry because the liabilities are far greater than the benefits in their mind. And Jesus says, not all men can receive that saying. Not all men have that gift. Well, what is the application? One application and will be done. Falling in love is easy, isn't it? Falling in love is easy. Enjoying the benefits of marriage can be easy. 
but fulfilling the duties, the loyalty, the commitment, the sacrifice in marriage is hard. But when aided by the grace of God and done in love, what an illustration, albeit perfect, what an illustration it sets before the world of Christ's relationship to his church. Remember, that's the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. Christ in the church, husband and wife, reflecting and illustrating that before the world. What a blessing when by the grace of God we can live that out in our homes. May God aid us all to his glory to take these things to heart and to follow his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do bless and thank you for your word, and we uh, do approach it with trembling, Lord God. We want to be faithful, uh, to hold rightly to what it teaches, and to live rightly by its precepts, and thereby to honor you, and thereby to glorify you. Father, you know our weakness, you know our downsittings and our uprisings, you know our thoughts afar off. Help us to heed the counsel that is given here for the married and for the unmarried. Help us to heed the warnings and the dangers and the pitfalls and help us also to live out in such a way to your glory and honor in our relationships uh, some reflection of Christ and his church before a watching world that you might get all the worship and praise is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.